Colossians 2, beware lest any spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. In the uh, whodunit, hoodwink, the uh, characters uh, of the classic story of Little Red Riding Hood uh, are put in the context of a mystery. And there's an inspector who's a frog, who is a, a master at asking questions, who is brought in to determine... I got it. I got it. <laughs> Thank you. Christy usually dresses me, but I've got to... <laughs> he, he comes in and he interviews all of the suspects and the witnesses. And in the process, they're trying to determine uh, who committed the crime of stealing Grandma's famous recipe for cookies, if I remember the, the story correctly. It, and uh, it is very, very helpful. If you haven't seen this movie, you ought to. Uh, in disclosing how each person has a different way of looking at the very same events, usually due to their circumstances and experience. In the much older movie, uh, Twelve Angry Men, the whole movie takes place in one room, a jury deliberation room. And in that room, we see different perspectives as the jurors try to piece together all the evidence and determine the guilt or innocence of a young defendant in a murder case. But each of their perspectives is influenced by their circumstances, their, their biases, their experiences in life. And personally, as an attorney, you know, I am always amazed at how important each person's background, experiences, prejudices, and ways of life has to do with how and what each of us perceives. And we largely communicate with one another, with one another and understand one another because of the common areas of our lives. And it's the dissimilarities or perspective that create some of the misunderstandings, miscommunications, and misinterpretations of life. Today, we want to take a few steps back and get a little wider perspective ourselves. In fact, we want to get worldviews, or rather try to see how worldviews affect our view of poverty, which is something we've been studying, and how it should be addressed. So let's first set the stage. What is the cause of poverty? Okay. To start, we're going to generalize, okay? And we're going to look at two views and responses from the church. The conservative or the evangelical view is it's a result of personal failure and sin, oftentimes. The liberal or what we might call the mainline denominational view, it's all a fart, all a fault of the system. Okay? By analogy, the conservative or evangelical would look at a bunny caught in a bear trap and say, 
Should have seen that coming. Must be sin in your life. Ignoring the indiscriminate nature of traps or systems. On the other hand, the liberal would see a chick trying to peck its way out of its own eggshell and respond, we've got to help you overcome this process and, and this system. Oblivious to the necessity of that very struggle for the lung development and survival of the chick without life support. Now, the fall broke everything, both people and systems. Therefore, I'm going to suggest to you that we've got to be open to the possibility that it is failure of both people and systems that we've got to be looking at when we assess individual cases of poverty. The good news is that the redemption of Jesus covers all. He reconciles all things to himself. Therefore, as his ambassadors, we must be concerned with both people and systems. So the question we're going to address today is, how does one's worldview affect poverty on these two levels, individually and in systems? On the individual level, to help poor people, we've got to understand how those people are intended to relate to God, self, others, and creation. The proper functioning of these relationships requires a correct worldview. What is a worldview? Well, a definition would be the complete set of beliefs or assumptions that make up the mindset of an individual and determine how the individual believes and what they believe. A worldview is not what we see, but how we see the world. Our worldview is not only the lens through which we see and interpret reality, but it also shapes the way that we relate to God, self, others, and creation. And I'm going to suggest that a defective worldview can be a major cause of material poverty. So let's take a look. Hopefully on your sheet there you see we're going to start with a distorted worldview of God. I'm just going to bring up some examples of these different worldviews. When Christian relief and development organizations tried to help Bolivian farmers, they succeeded in increasing crop yield, but not net income for the farmers. Why? Because the farmers accepted the farming assistance and experience, but held on to their worship of the Mother Earth Goddess, spending large portions of their incomes for sacrifices and festivals in her honor. The effect of the development assistance was to actually increase the idolatry of the farmers as their praise for the goddess increased as with the increased crop yield. Of course, in the United States, we may find that some of the poor haven't even thought about God, but we're going to address that later. What about a distorted worldview of self? I want to spend a little bit more time on this one. Out of wedlock pregnancy is rampant in the poor community. But for single moms in American ghettos, the cycle of poverty deeply affects their view of self. Frankly, my view, uh, my experience, through hundreds of adoptions, is that even outside the poor community, if a man is not committed enough to marry, 
99% of the time he will not be committed financially to the child. This leaves the mother with not just the full burden of child rearing, but the realization that she was really only good for one purpose as far as the father was concerned. And that's not conducive to self-acceptance with a life purpose. With pregnancy and then child rearing by herself, continuing education becomes difficult. Without that education, finding and keeping a job becomes even more difficult, if not impossible. If there is a job, someone else must care for the child or children, weakening the mother-child bond. And of course, there, in most cases, there's no father-child bond. If there is no job or household provider, she will usually turn to the government for assistance and start the process she has seen modeled over and over again in her community with the attendant feeling that she cannot succeed as a person. Do uh, Dr. David Hilfiker, who provides medical care in the inner city, explains, for many young women or girls, having a child may be the only way of finding someone to love and be loved by. Sex and childbirth among teenagers in the ghettos is about personal affirmation. However, we all know that the realities that come with that affirmation are very harsh. In poor countries, without government assistance, the result is likely the same. Depending on others, whether family or aid organizations, can lead to a depreciation of self-worth. Let's turn to the worldview of others here. The authors of the book, When Helping Hurts, that's the basis of this study, recount a news story that I remember from several years ago. Two boys aged 11 and 10 tried to force five-year-old Eric Morris to steal candy from a local store. When Eric refused, they pushed him out of the window of the 14th floor of their housing project. Some of the residents of the neighborhood lament, lamented this tragedy. They noted that few of the adults living in the project valued life, so why should the young people? The housing project was dark, filthy, stinking, dilapidated. One commented, when you live in filth, your mind takes in filth, and you feel nothing. Now some have referred to this view as ghetto nihilism. Now nihilism comes from the Latin nihil, which means nothing. Nihilism is a worldview that says traditional values and beliefs are unfounded and that existence is senseless or useless. It denies any objective truth and especially moral truth. It includes the belief that conditions in society are so bad as to make destruction desirable for its own sake, independent of any constructive program or possibility. A mindset of predatory gratification is what we see in inner-city gangs uh, who see other human beings as prey. The guiding social philosophy is not do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but kill or be killed. 
Now, the effect of ghetto nihilism on material poverty is clear. It becomes harder to conduct daily activities within that community if you're always looking over your shoulder for self-protection. And economic investment in such communities is a lot less attractive. But worse is the poverty of being that we've talked about, experienced by ghetto children, who assume, perhaps correctly, that they really won't live very long, so they have no incentive to try hard in school, which in turn contributes to their material poverty if they do survive. Next, let's turn to a distorted worldview of creation. Animism, which some of the missionaries in here would be familiar with, is a common worldview found in tribes and remote villages of the world. And it says that spirits control the rest of creation, and really humans have no control, and they cannot exercise dominion over creation. Missionaries often succeed in converting these people to Christianity, then they build schools and sanitation facilities, and those facilities often go unused. The failure is in the discipleship process because they did not explain a biblical worldview that goes beyond salvation to how Christians live in communicating the worldview of stewardship over the rest of creation. Now, these new converts retain their animist practices over a harvest, and so they fail to properly store their food, they allow, which allows the rats to consume much of it, and then they chalk up the meager remains and resultant malnutrition and poverty to the usual rationale as well. This is what the spirits allows us to have. Business as usual. When the missionaries figured this out, they start teaching stewardship over creation. The result is proper storage measures are taken, sanitation becomes important, people have better nourishment, children end up going to school, better farming techniques were employed, better outlook on education, others, self, and God. But government, when they get involved with this, is wholly incapable of such an approach. The solution proposed for the tragedy of the killing of Eric Morris tear down the high-rise project and build a low-rise project, as if falling from a second or third floor story would be less dramatic. Now, the church holds a much better solution if we can simply think it through. However, the North American Christians have also been infected by worldviews that dominate our culture, like materialism, relativism, relativism, and secularism. These worldview sicknesses, as I might call them, are uh, contributing to stressful lifestyles, the breakup of families, addictions, even mental illness within our society. We see in many families who could get by with less that they must keep up with the Joneses with two stressed out working parents leaving less time for spouse and children. Certainly we have got to get our own houses in order, which includes our worldviews. Now, to be honest, changing the worldview of poor people or anybody does not necessarily equate to alleviation of poverty. Just like winning an argument doesn't equate to changing somebody's mind in reality, much less their behavior on a subject. However, changing the worldview of a poor person may very well be the foundation 
for changing individual lives. We want to shift now to the systemic level. We've got to consider the breakdown of systems. And so what I want to do is take a look at the system with which we are most familiar with, and that is the American welfare system. But to do that, we've got to try to understand what has happened over the last hundred plus years. Again, we're generalizing here, please understand. In the late 1800s, if you studied your American history, the Industrial Revolution had a profound effect on our nation, particularly the economy. Manufacturing exploded primarily in northern cities. Because of their fair weather, the economy of the South was based primarily on agriculture, which up to then had been run by slave labor. Uh, of course, many of the former slaves after the Civil War stayed in the South because that was their home and that's where they could find work. However, with the invention of the cotton gin and other equipment, uh, that replaced people in the fields. And now that though, even though they were freed from slavery, they were also out of meaningful work. And then, on top of all that, for slavery and then post-slavery discrimination deprived most of these people of adequate education. During the first part of the 20th century, there was a huge migration from the South up to uh, cities in the North and elsewhere for these manufacturing jobs, congregating primarily in the inner cities close to the factories. These, well, let me first say something about labels. I hate the word African-American because we're all Americans. I hate the word black because we're all of one blood, okay? But I gotta distinguish, okay? Because these people play a vital role, not only in our history, but in our present situation because of the sin of our nation. These primarily black communities, while crowded, were largely very viable and stable and centered around the church. Shifting gears here, in 1919, a young army officer by the name of Dwight D. Eisenhower led a troop convoy traveling across the United States by truck. The convoy averaged just under six miles per hour. Can you imagine? Largely because of poor road conditions, many of which were unpaved. When General Eisenhower saw the German Audubon in the 1940s, it spurred a dream that President Eisenhower brought to fruition in the mid-1950s, the beginning of an interstate highway system. Okay? We don't often realize that I-70 has not always been there. And before the 1960s, to get to Kansas City or Manhattan, you had to go on US-24. And before that, it was probably a gravel, and before that, a dirt road. Uh, but this path of the interstate system logically went through major metropolitan areas. And these highway projects, coupled with federal urban renewal programs, ate up much of the land of these inner city neighborhoods. The low-income blacks were relocated to housing projects in the inner city, while the more successful blacks relocated often to the suburbs. But this left 
the inner city communities without many of their leaders, role models, working families, and solid economic base. To make matters worse, in the, in, in the early 70s, the U.S. started a transition from a primarily manufacturing economy to a service economy. Blue-collar jobs fled the inner city, went to other places and other countries. Unemployment in the inner city went through the roof, and many inner city residents joined the welfare roles developed under President Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. The recipients of these welfare programs lost benefits from the program to the extent that they earned an income. Given the choice of working at relatively low-paying jobs versus not working a legitimate job but receiving financial support from the system, many chose the latter, often becoming dependent on the welfare assistance. Some who desired a little more found resources in occupations that didn't require reporting of wages to the government, also known as crime. Test question. What happens when a city uproots a culture out of its familiar neighborhood, the cultural leaders leave, the changing economy takes away the major source of employment, and you cram these people who have been the target of generational discrimination, if not oppression, and lack of education into housing projects, and then you pay them for not working. Might not be a total surprise to see broken families, out-of-wedlock birds, violent crime, drug trafficking, and addiction, not to mention a worldview that sees nothing to hope for beyond today, kind of like nihilism. Now a broader worldview question for us. On the whole, can you and I, with our relatively privileged backgrounds, upbringing, and wealth, sit here with a straight face and say that those people in the inner city ghettos are fully responsible for their circumstances? One commentator stated that because our society defines identity by individual success, the absence of meaningful employment corrodes the sense of self and by extension family and by extension community. To feel unable to support a family and the wider community can, can severely constrain the manner in which one thinks, feels, and acts with respect to the future. Worldview affects systems, systems affect worldview, and both affect people. Now, I need to make sure that you understand what I am not saying. Let's take some current events. There are recent news reports of protests by non-union fast food workers allegedly encouraged by the unions, demanding that their minimum wage pay be doubled. Okay? And let's all recognize that it's not easy to make it if you're uh, uh, head of a household on a minimum wage. Okay? Now, some principles here. Those workers have the right to free speech. Do they not? Including the right to protest. 
Secondly, they also have the right to improve their lot, gain new skills, and seek a higher paying job. That's how our system works. The free market is not perfect, but it is far better than any government-controlled system. We're still the envy of the world, and our system is largely based on biblical principles. The problem, of course, with the demand to double our minimum wage is the law of unintended consequences. You see, when the price of a hamburger goes up, which it necessarily must to pay the wages, fewer people buy burgers. And when fewer people buy burgers, the owner of the business has to fire people, meaning they go on unemployment. And of course, that means they turn to the government, also known as the taxpayers, to give them something to live on. It doesn't work very well. This is not unlike the unintended consequences of the Affordable Care Act, which requires employers to provide health coverage for all who work 30 hours or more. And interestingly, now even the unions who worked hard to pass this act have complained because, surprise, surprise, employers are now cutting hours to under 30 to avoid the additional costs of the coverage. And the act adds a surcharge on those expensive union insurance plans that they negotiated. Now, I hope you can see that I've not gone over to the other side. The wisdom of God gave us personal responsibility in order for us to have purpose in life and to give us humility when we fail. We should never use our circumstances as an excuse for sin. No, not ever. And sin clearly is a significant factor in the plight of many of the poor. If you doubt that, just ask Barry Feeker or read his book about the way God has brought healing to countless souls caught up in not just poverty, but sin, who have passed through the rescue mission. God's Word makes it clear that our responsibility to love one another includes setting examples of productivity and not becoming a burden to others to the extent possible. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, set an example, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody, not welfare. Clearly, Understand, we're painting with a very broad brush here to show major trends and to understand how we got to where we are today. There have, in fact, been many individuals who have come out of these disadvantaged, oppressive systems and were responsible and pursued a godly course. There are people like George Washington Carver and Dr. Ben Carson, to name an old and a contemporary example. Uh, but if all of us here we're born into a culture of welfare dependency, and that's all we knew. Might you and I have a little different view of life? If we're honest, 
we've got to admit that some born into ghetto communities involuntarily become part of a culture that is very different from our own. Some of these systems and their effects are the result of sin and irresponsibility, but much of it is the result of man's feeble methods and efforts to rectify the part of the plight of the poor apart from God. At best, our government and many aid organizations simply do not understand how to fix broken people and broken systems. At worst, it could be that this is simply the age-old scheme that we saw in ancient Rome to make as many as possible dependent upon the government to maintain as much control as possible. And it's probably a combination of the two. Now, when we get down to the individual, if a poor person, I mean truly poor, none of us, walks into this church, being aware of the background makes all the difference in how we respond. Sure, in particular cases, that person may very well have sin issues which have got to be addressed to bring lasting peace. And that may even involve confrontation. This is frankly the most loving thing that we can do. However, we cannot ignore the balancing factor of the impact of systems on that person. If we do, we're going to come across as harsh and we're going to lose the relationship needed to draw someone to Christ. The fall really happened. And to dismiss its impact on both individuals and systems can blind us to our responsibilities as ambassadors to bring the reality of Christ's redemption to bear on both. Now I want to talk here a little bit about some adversarial worldviews. And the first one we're going to, the first thing we want to understand is that everyone has a worldview. Everyone. Anybody who claims to be neutral, objective, or unbiased is either lying or simply unaware of their presuppositions, what they actually believe and how they act. Even the most primitive remote villager in a, in a jungle looks at life from some worldview, has some perspective. Proverbs 21 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord ponders the hearts. Secondly, that includes us. The way that we respond to the materially poor will disclose our worldview about the nature of God, self, others, and creation. Because of the brokenness of our own culture, there's much within the evangelical church that is at odds with biblical worldview. The details of the jot and tittle of worldviews on a personal level are probably as buried as there are people. However, of necessity, we will classify worldviews in groups. Now, these are worldviews to which there's some critical mass. A significant number of people are attracted to these so that we may understand their effects. Let's start with the worldview that we teach here, biblical theism, and then contrast it with the worldview of others. This view, as you can see, describes God as distinct from creation, yet connected to it and active in it. In our view, the spiritual and the physical realms touch each other. As it says in Colossians 1, God in the person of Jesus Christ is described as creator, 
sustainer and reconciler of all things, both material and spiritual. And this is the worldview that dominated in the Western world well into the 19th century. Now, this view can be easily distinguished from pantheism, which teaches that all is God and God is all. And in the diagram there, you can see the two circles are just one. And this is the worldview of many inhabitants of third world countries. Pantheism is not the same, but a distant cousin of animism. The subtle difference being that the pantheist sees all creation as one, while the animist sees different spirits at work in everything. The effect is largely the same, though. If the rat is either God or a spirit, we're not likely to kill or deny the rat what it wants. Now, deism is a view that agrees with biblical theism that God exists. And in addition, that reason and observation of the natural world display to us the existence of God. This is what we call general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork in, in Psalm 19. However, deism rejects the specific revelation and authority of Scripture as a source of knowledge. Deism gained prominence in the 17th and 18th century during the Age of Enlightenment, especially in England, uh, France, Germany, uh, and in the United States, and particularly among intellectuals who had been raised as Christians and believed in one God, but found fault with organized religion and did not believe in supernatural events like miracles, uh, nor in the inerrancy of Scripture or the Trinity. The classical description of a deist is one who believes that God is like a great watchmaker who puts the, the watch together with all of its intricate parts, winds it up, sets it on the mantle, and lets it tick away until the end of time and does not touch it. In short, the deist says there is a creator God, but that God does not operate in our world. Humans are to use their reason to understand the world that he created. From our perspective, looking 2020 hindsight, we can now see that deism was simply a stepping stone for those who wanted to move away from the dominant worldview at the time of biblical theism. Okay? Among the founders of our country, a few were identified as deists. One of those was actually Benjamin Franklin in many of the history books. Now, Franklin did discuss some of the merits of deism. As an old and presumably wiser man, he moved back toward biblical theism. In fact, he stated at the Constitutional Convention when he was, I think, 84, the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. Franklin then exhorted and convinced the, the convention to fast and pray to God for wisdom to resolve their differences, which is exactly what they did and why we have a constitution that we agreed upon. Now, another view is one that's in vogue uh, more recently called the modern view. And this is what 
is oftentimes called by other names, you know, we're speaking generally here, Western secularism, materialism, naturalism. And deism, or this took deism one step further, removing the need for God altogether. This worldview holds not that the physical doesn't touch the spiritual, but as the deist says, but that the spiritual realm simply does not exist. According to this view, the universe resulted and operates by natural processes without direction by God. Humankind has no need for God and is left with only human reasoning to understand the reality of the world. Unlike theists and deists, you can quickly see that this view has no discernible explanation for the beginning, purpose, or cause of the universe. My personal opinion is that materialists haven't needed an explanation because at some point people stop asking the why and the how questions of our existence and simply adopted the philosophy of uh, Nacho Libre's sidekick who responds to Nacho's leap or plea to be baptized with I believe in science. They think as far as the white robed people tell them to think and no further. Now, this is important because it is this materialist or naturalist or modern view of life on the part of wealthier nations and people that harms both the poor as well as the rich. When all reality and problems are fundamentally material, they can only be solved or manipulated by material means and human reasoning. This takes place not only on the macro, but on the micro levels whether it's the World Bank throwing out money to developing nations, short-term mission teams, or handing a beggar money without addressing the underlying brokenness. Now, I'm not saying that this help is always bad or that it's not necessary in certain situations. The other day, Christy made me drive around the block to return to a lady, a middle-aged lady, holding a sign, will work for food. But Christie handed her a, the, the sheet of our salvation verses that we were working on at the time. Again, I'm generalizing here that our concepts of poverty alleviation in the church have been infected or influenced by a materialist viewpoint. When all we do is hand out money or food and do things for the poor. In addition, a materialist worldview leads to the arrogance of many who feel they are the saviors of the poor, who not only possess the riches to help them, but the superior intelligence to know what material things the poor really need. In our, if, if our universe is solely material, that is a logical consequence. Now stick with me here, this may seem like a stretch. But I believe that this materialist approach to poverty alleviation is simply a kinder, gentler form of the eugenics movement birthed in the U.S. by progressives. I don't know if you remember, but quite a while ago we discussed the birth control and forced sterilization efforts to eliminate the inferiors in America which in turn formed the intellectual justification for the Nazi regime and the Holocaust overseas. 
Worldviews, like elections, have consequences. In order to stop this harmful approach to poverty alleviation and our arrogant attitudes, we must first recognize and then repent of our materialist worldview. Now, any of you and any Christian might argue, well, but I do believe in God, and I'm active in my church, I pray, I read my Bible. So I'm clearly not a modernist or a materialist. Well, maybe, but many Christians can still engage in a sort of blend that's been called evangelical Gnosticism. Okay? Now, I don't have time... Do you have that one? Evangelical Gnosticism. I don't have time to, ex to explain Gnosticism, but just understand that evangelical Gnosticism involves a subtle yet effective sacred and secular divide in which all spiritual practices remain in the spiritual realm, kind of like Sunday morning, and the rest of our lives are lived, at, lived as if there is no God in everyday work, play, art, literature, entertainment, education, and science. In our comfortable North American lifestyles, frankly, this is the stuff of hypocrisy. We say one thing, God is really good, God is love, but then we act in other spheres of our life as if he is irrelevant. This plays out in poverty alleviation when we first help the poor with food, medical assistance, housing projects, or wells put in by professionals without a clear declaration that it is really Jesus Christ who ultimately provides all things and that we are simply his tools. Sometimes we want to demonstrate, no, no, we really are Christians. So we add on a Bible study or a VBS and we teach that Jesus saves souls. Quite true. But what we have unintentionally taught is that material poverty is alleviated by material solutions and Jesus just solves spiritual poverty. This approach fails to communicate that it is only Jesus who can reconcile the broken relationships that led to the material poverty in the first place. So as we discussed earlier, when missionaries go into an animist or a pantheistic culture with their modern methods, their technology, their medicine, and their money, they can often prove to be more powerful than the spirits or the, that God in all. However, think of this from, from the standpoint of the native. He may just transfer his allegiance from the worship of the spirits to a worship of machines and vaccines. In other words, they exchange their animism for a modern or materialist worldview. Another example. President George W. Bush, I'm sure, had the best of intentions when he started a, something called the Faith-Based Initiatives. He saw the good being done by religious organizations and he hoped to tap that good in government-supported programs. The programs allocated federal funds to religious groups for the, quote, non-spiritual, unquote, part of their work. A good friend of ours, in fact, a committed evangelical, was on the Washington, D.C. staff of this program. 
Needless to say, in our culture, this was very controversial at the time, watched closely by the atheist groups in the ACLU. Therefore, the people administrating this program uh, had to draw very clear lines to avoid a charge of government endorsement of religion. The resolution of this problem was that the recipient groups uh, had to take all explicitly Christian references out of the materials and just leave the other valuable stuff. In essence, these well-meaning Christian, oftentimes Christian, government program administrators unwittingly ended up telling these Christian organizations and workers that in order to get the money, you've got to practice evangelical Gnosticism. In other words, you've got to send the message that you can be good without Christ. That Christ is not a necessary part of anything lasting. So as Christians are affected by a modernist worldview, we tend to fall into the paradoxical situations which takes the guts out of our witness. Then, along comes something called postmodernism. Now, I don't have a graphic for this. And I was trying to think of one. Because uh, this is the viewpoint that there is no absolute truth, that truth is not knowable. I was thinking maybe we just put up a, a big question mark, but that would probably raise some questions. Or maybe just a bunch of little gods all over the place. Because what a postmodernist might say is, it's fine for you to believe your Christianity as true, but I don't. You see, I have inner goodness, and I can decide for myself what is good and true. And this is literally each man doing what is right in his own eyes. Now, to dispense with this view, all one really has to say is, Oh, okay, if we all can decide what is good for ourselves, then really you, you postmodernist, uh, you really should have no problem if I decide it's good for me to take your car and your wife and shoot you. Okay? Uh, now, the fact that this world can be, can be easily destroyed does not mean that it has been destroyed in the minds of many unthinking people. When postmodernism becomes a mainline worldview in the culture, as it has, frankly, in the United States, the effect on wobbly Christians is to intimidate them from sharing their faith openly or even mentioning God as a part of the solution. Talking about a Christian God is simply, in today's vernacular, not politically correct. And we oftentimes cower in fear in front of men instead of in front of God. If we wish to truly help others, we must both understand their perspective or worldview and be confident of our own. The church is really the only hope. It plays the vital role of shaping worldview and changing lives by proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to both rich and poor so that all of us may fulfill our calling to, to glorify God through our work and our lives. But finally, we've got to, re to remember our mission, or our mission statement. Go, therefore, 
Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I commanded you. And lo, the good news, I am with you even to the end of the age. Father, you have given us so much to understand. Our world is confusing. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to focus on the true, the solid, the righteous, and holy Word of God. Lord, help us to stay connected and not be cut adrift, to wander into some other camp, whether it's in college or in the workplace, or in any other conversation. Help us to know that we know, because you are our God. We give all praises and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.